0: This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage. The courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring out, but we may think about the most. This month's series is on the experience of incarceration, and we're interested in exploring the way in which people with a criminal record suffer from an extraordinary level of stigma in our society. Today I'll be speaking with Sonia about her arrest after she was found with firearms and explosives as she and a small group of people contemplated using armed struggle in order to help stop the Vietnam War. We'll be talking about Sonia's experience of imprisonment back in the 1970s and what it has been like to live with a criminal record ever since. Sonia is currently a psychotherapist practicing in Boston and also a human rights activist. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Sonia.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So I'm going to ask you to help me set the context. Tell me a little bit about when it was, where you were, how old you were, and so on, just so we get a sense of what was going on at the time.
1: Um, I was, um, I I think, about 28. I had been an an anti-war activist. I had worked with community groups that were um, struggling to maintain their communities. In other words, you know, when... um, The BRA brought um, urban renewal into the south end of Boston. Um, There were many, many hundreds of community people um, who were forced out uh, to make room uh, for gentrification. So I worked on on that particular campaign with community groups. Um, So I had a long, I already had a substantial history um, of, by the time of my arrest,
0: and so I understand that you and your partner at the time mm-hmm. really started to wonder, uh, you know what were the what were the ways that you could stop the Vietnam War? And, and tell me the story of how you came by uh, possession of firearms and explosives. Uh, we got them from construction companies
1: that used it that we knew had large. Um, quarries and places like that but um at this point it wasn't a massive collection but we had we definitely had some um and we had some firearms um i have to say that by by the time we were arrested we really didn't have concrete plans in place it was something that was under discussion and um you know, we had gradually started going to to do some target practice and, and all the while, um, you know, talking about what would make some sense in terms of doing some damage or making a political point about companies that were profiting off the war effort.
0: I see, not just supporting it, but actually making money off of it. Right. Right. And so... You get this idea to to get the dynamite from construction companies, which makes sense, of course, because they do blasting. It hadn't occurred to me. And it sounds like you had firearms. Did you... Had you gotten to the point in your own self that you felt like you could use one if you had to?
1: No. Um, I did go to target par- practice, um, but it was one thing to shoot at a can. Um... It was another thing to um think about actually using it on a person.
0: It's ironic, isn't it, because of course you were motivated it sounds like by a desperate wish to stop the loss of life at the war. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I can imagine it was quite a conflict inside.
1: Yeah, it was it was target practice was difficult for me because I could imagine it progressing. To something beyond tin cans.
0: Um, Right. So take me now to the moment when you were actually arrested. Here Mm -hmm. you had been thinking this through, thinking this through, and then what actually happened?
1: I was simply driving in a car with my co-defendant and um, got to a major intersection and there seemed to be a roadblock and I my first thought was that there had been a terrible accident, and until I saw police um, rushing the car that we were in from every direction and pulling us out of the car. And I think at that point I was still... Um, I remember it not settling in the moment that this was really serious. and. Um, Even though if anyone from the outside had watched the whole scene, would have known that this was serious. There are never that many police and that many agencies to execute an an arrest unless it's serious. Um, But my mind, I remember when it was first happening, my mind just couldn't go there.
0: So there you are, arrested and for possession of, of explosives, and you get brought... What, what happens next after you're, you're jumped on from all sides? Mm-hmm. What happens next? Actually, the
1: thing that I was most afraid of was um, when I had been working in the South End, um, <clears throat> I came upon a, uh, an offset printing press that I had used for some campaign literature, for what we were doing in the um, South End. And I asked the owner if I could use the offset press at night to do some of my own printing, and he agreed. And what I ended up doing was printing hundreds of um, blank selective service cards, and I had a carton of them.
0: And explain what that means to me, Sonia. Mm-hmm. What does a blank selective service card actually translate to? What does that mean?
1: Well, it used to be when, you're, when we had the draft that every male 18 and over w- had to register for selective service, and they were given a card which would indicate their draft eligibility. Right, their number, words, right? If you were 1A, you were the next group that was going to be drafted. Um, so having a blank Selective Service card, if you had a 1A, you're going to have difficulty traveling. You might have difficulty getting a new job because people knew that you were going to be drafted. So it was just giving people um, the option of putting in their own draft status.
0: I see. So that way they could essentially kind of dodge the draft or at least. Right. I mean, the
1: Selective Service would know, you know, what this draft status was. But whoever they had to present it to would look at the card and see what it said.
0: Got it. So you're in the squad car, and they uh, take you to jail, and presumably they thought you were a very dangerous person. Um, right. What What happened after that?
1: Well, I was, um, you know, brought into Charles Street and... Um, i I had people outside who were trying to raise bail for me, but the difficulty was that there was no bail bondsman who would who would bail me and After about a week, um, I hadn't heard from my parents at all, and I was concerned about them because they had no idea about this in advance. Um, and my father came in. and I was so dangerous, apparently, that I had to meet in a special room with two guards present um, and my father. And um, so we were talking, and he you know, let me know that my mother really didn't want to see me. Um, and then my father asked me to look him in the eye, and he said, have you ever hurt another human being and i said no and he said then i will help you and it was the most emotional moment for me and i asked him i said are you a pacifist and he said well i don't know what home and they um, put their house up for, you know, as collateral to get me out of jail.
0: So interesting, Um, isn't it? Because we're talking about the criminal justice system and imprisonment, which is what we're going to go to in a second. But in some ways, the threat of losing the love of your parents may be for most people a, a bigger sentence than prison time. Not necessarily, of course, mm-hmm. but it's powerful. So I do want to actually move to that, Sonia. Okay. Um, so they post their house, you get bailed out, but ultimately I understand you served a six-month prison term, and I'd like to hear a little bit from you about what that was like.
1: Um, yeah, I, I was given a, um, a five-year indefinite sentence, which meant, at least for women, that you had your first parole eligibility. In six months, and um, for me, when I got there, I just looked around and said, "Oh, I really don't want to be here." <laughs> the prison wasn't. The prison system was not at all geared to what they said they were geared to, which was rehabilitation, and so. I became very active within the prison, and I made a conscious choice to do that. So I started to organize committees to make changes. Um, <clears throat> I joined a committee, or I think I was the committee at Framingham, to um, make changes in health care delivery to the prison population. Um, which was terrible. It it was just a terrible system. So I was busy from morning till night. Um,
0: Tell me the story of how you used some of your former offset printing skills while you were in the prison. Uh, yeah,
1: Yeah, it probably had less to do with offset. They had a mimeograph machine there, and they had assigned me to work in the mimeograph room where my job was to type the menus for the adult correctional institutions and mimeograph them. And I thought, oh, this is, this is a wonderful opportunity. So at night, I would write a newsletter. I would sit in my room. And I just want to say that I was, during the 70s when I was there, the early 70s, you know, it, it wasn't the time of mass incarceration that we have now. So each of us had our own rooms. So I could sit in my room and write at night.
0: What kind of story, Sonia, did you write about in your prison newsletter?
1: Well, the one I remember the most, I did a um, front page story on um, a drug experimentation on prisoners um, in the correctional system and um, where drug companies would come in to test drugs and offer prisoners a carton of cigarettes to participate and um,
0: highly, a highly unethical practice. I well,
1: y- you would sign a consent an informed consent form, <laughs> but I'm not sure informed consent is meaningful when you're in prison, because there are a lot of people there who have no money. They have no family, no money. So a little bit of something is better than nothing, So they'll sign anything. To get what the drug company
0: has to offer, right? And also, if you don't, if you're addicted to nicotine and you don't have other ways of accessing it, it's it's right. really not. Exactly. it's not what we'd call a free um, choice.
1: I only got out, I think, two issues before I was paroled. Um,
0: so tell me that story, please, because I know that um, it's kind of a judgment call, right? They have the power to either decide you need to stay in or to release you. And what was it about your case that that allowed for you to be released after six months?
1: I think in part is they understood that I had a lot of support outside the prison. I was lucky enough to have enough friends so that I could get a job and have a place to live when I got out. At the time, they wouldn't release people. I don't know if it's the same now, but they wouldn't release people unless you had a job and a place to stay. So I had that. Um, I don't know if the fact that, you know, I was just kind of a thorn in their side um, made a difference. That I mean, they knew I was producing this newsletter, even though they hadn't proved it up until that point. Um,
0: so they knew you were trouble, and they wanted you gone. Is that what you're saying? It's possible. I mean, I think that played a part. Uh-huh. Um, and so the fact that you had housing, it sounds like, is, is that a prerequisite for being discharged or released, that you actually have a place to stay? It was at
1: the time, and they would um, actually go and inspect the place where you were going to be living, and they would either approve it or dis- disapprove it. Hmm. And um, you had to have a means of support. You had to have a job.
0: And, of course, in that respect, I understand you were very lucky because it can be very difficult to get a job Yes. after you have a prison record.
1: Yeah, uh, I had a job and I had a place to live. But in general, you know, the system is aligned against people being successful when they get out of prison. I mean, it was even difficult for me who had a significant support group um, I had a terrible parole officer. He made life extremely difficult for me. He came to my job well, You unannel- mean he came to your job so no. if you
0: had been if you hadn't told people, he could have gotten you fired right there just by the fact of his existence right, right. I see so so what are some of the other forces that are aligned to, to, to make it hard for people to succeed? Well, I can
1: only speak personally. For me, I couldn't get a a driver's license for a year and a half. I went to hearing after hearing after hearing at the the Registry of Motor Vehicles. And it wasn't until I hired a lawyer to go with me to a hearing that I got my driver's license a year and a half after I got out. So there were times when I had to drive a car, so I was driving without a license. And I could easily have had my parole revoked if I had been stopped. Um, at the time, I, you know, we are talking the 70s, that you couldn't have a savings account if you were a convicted felon. Um, so there were, you know, I was just so lucky to have people to, to support me through this. And um, and I also, I mean, I was a college graduate, which was very
0: helpful. Right, so you had so many resources that made a huge yeah. difference. Sonia, I want to jump forward now, because I understand that eventually, um, after doing some work as a teacher for a while, you applied mm-hmm. to become a psychotherapist. And I'd like to pick up the, your story there, if we may, and, mm-hmm. and have okay. you tell me a little bit about the challenge of becoming a psychotherapist when you have a prison record.
1: Yeah, I had applied with the, uh, to get a license for marriage and family therapy, and I sent in my application, and I think the next day they sent out um, the denial that I couldn't get a license. But then I discovered that um, I could apply to have my record sealed, but it was a huge dilemma for me. I, I, w- I had this huge struggle with myself about whether to do it. Because I thought, I'm the same person today as I am the day after I have my record sealed. Why should I hide who I am?
0: Right, and, and what re- having a record sealed means is that when they next ask you, Do you have a record that you could say no, you could lie effectively? I can lie. It's
1: state-sanctioned
0: lying. State-sanctioned lying, right. So you can say, I don't have a record, and because it's sealed, no one will find out. Exactly. I see. So here you are with this dilemma. Basically, you have to lie in order to get your license. Yep.
1: And I had to wait, because I had a five-year sentence, and you have to wait 15 years from the end of your sentence. I had to wait 20 years but i had the record sealed and now i'm allowed to lie uh, i'm allowed to be a fraud
0: essentially so i want to talk about that about the impact of this because mm-hmm. you're a psychotherapist you're in the profession of helping people heal which is in some ways helping people live with more integrity and yet you well
1: it's living with more integrity and living without shame yes and making this a secret somehow twist it into something shameful rather than some people make mistakes Mm -hmm. people have the ability to change or not change but they have the ability to change so rather than wanting to know the truth and getting to know the person they tell you to lie about who you are and so I feel like I'm, I'm silenced in a number of ways. I don't talk to coworkers about it. I mean, there are some holes in my life. <laughs> and people say, oh, what were you doing then? You know, and I, oh, I was, you know, you know I just cover it up. Um, I know there's an initiative in California now, which I'm sure won't win, but to have employers not ask the question. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? And just get to know the person and see if they're worthy of being hired. Um, But I would rather go to the licensing board with my record and say, This is who I am. What are your questions? And have them decide.
0: Absolutely, because exactly as you say, by lying, it, it makes it as if it was shameful. And then that has all these ripple effects on you. Yeah. I mean, on your relationships, what you're saying is... Totally. It forces you into a kind of shamed silence in relation to people that you might otherwise be able to be closer to. Absolutely. And who could know you much more intimately. Yeah. Are there yeah. other ways that that secret has affected you? I think I, I
1: think I project... To other people, there are parts of my life you cannot ask about.
0: (laughs) And how couldn't you, right? Because that's the truth. (laughs) Yeah. So people feel a little bit hesitant to get too close to you. Well,
1: I know there are people who I've known for years. They know a lot about my past, but they never ask me about it. I know that sometimes I make light of it. But it was a very traumatic experience. First of all, I mean, people who go to jail, I have to say, the people who I met in prison, what we share in common is that we all have um, a traumatic past. Um, There may be some differences. I mean, I certainly had more privileges than other people who I was in prison with. But... um,
0: and, and let me just make sure I understand that you're not talking about trauma that preceded arrest necessarily. You're talking about the trauma of being arrested and going through this sort of dehumanization. No, I that. think both. Yes.
1: I mean, I certainly have a trauma history, and I would, I would um, venture to guess that every person who is in prison has a um, a trauma in their past, a deep trauma. Um, And so there's already a lot of shame to go around. And then you can't be open. I mean, I'm not ashamed of my past. If if somebody asks me about it, I share it openly. I'm not going to hide it because it's, it's who I am. It's what's made me who I am today. But there are so many venues where it's not in your best interest Mm. to say anything. You either omit things or you think of a cover story.
0: And what would be an example of a venue like that? Well, I'm thinking mainly
1: in work situations. Um, You know, I run into it with clients, too, where... um, I have a, uh, like I have clients who have arrest records. (laughs) Yes. And I say, well, how long has it been? And they'll say, and I said, why don't you apply to, you know, you could have that record sealed if that works for you. So how do you know that?
0: (laughs) And how do you answer, Sonia? I lie. I said, you know what,
1: I used to work with prisoners, and so I know that. Yeah. But I don't feel... gen. I mean, I'm not being genuine with them.
0: No. And what do you think might happen if you told the truth?
1: Wow. To a client? Yeah. It feels dangerous. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but right. But I can't... It does, right? I'm not right? sure I
1: can expound on
0: that. I mean, it's so... We, we're taught you're not supposed to reveal things about yourself. It It sort of violates therapy codes. Yeah. But it also... But it's being, when you're asked a direct question,
1: like, do you, if somebody asked me, do you have children? I would say yes, right? Mm -hmm. How do you know you can have your records sealed?
0: I make up a story. Right. And do you think that that ends up affecting your connection with that client or patient? I don't know. I
1: asked
0: myself that. I don't know. So, Sonia, we are going to have to stop. But one yeah. of the things I want to say to you is one of the kind of guiding principles behind this show is the idea that our deepest wounds become an opportunity. If we want, if we choose, become an opportunity to give something back to people. Mm-hmm. And what I'm so struck by hearing you is that you are doing that. You know, you, you are absolutely using what you have learned painfully. To help the people you're working with, and and how amazing! I mean, I wonder, right? I have the same silencing therapy police that you do, but I want—I I can only imagine what it would be like for a client who has a history, who has an arrest history, to find out that you, someone they admire and respect, and trust, also does. How profoundly that might lift their shame.
1: Yeah, but, you know, I would need some
0: serious supervision around that you, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, No doubt. And you might even need some legal advice, too. <laughs> you know, I don't know, but I'm so struck by, in some ways, the, the authority you have as a therapist and how how powerful it might be um, in seeing that someone with like, you know, if I was your client, like me with an arrest history, you know, could be this person that I look up to and count on and... Just how profound that might be. Yeah, it has that potential. Right. Um, and, I, it, of course, it could go south in all kinds of other ways. <laughs> but you do agree, like, you know, if a client
1: asks you, do you have children, that's a very... Now, some therapists may not answer. I certainly do.
0: But that's a very
1: different question.
0: It's a very different question. It's not ashamed. We're talking about stigma again. Yes. This is a question that is so profoundly fraught with stigma. Yep. Yes, and of course, the fact that you have to lie about it, though, ends up feeding that stigma.
1: It does. And I think the reason that I agreed to do this today is just, um, I think I'm looking for a path out of this. I really, this part of me that just, doesn't care anymore, who knows? Of course I care, but it's like I'm willing to take that risk.
0: Well, Sonia, thank you so much for being my guest.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.
0: I want to close in asking, you mentioned two organizations that made a big difference in your life. We always try to end the show with some resources. You mentioned the Prison Rights Project and the Prison Health Project. Are those both ongoing?
1: The Prisoners' Rights Project is. the um, Prisoner Help Project ended
0: um, when I worked there. <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, so if someone is interested in learning more, can they Google the Prisoner Rights Project? Is that the name of it? I, I, I think it's called Prisoners. Prisoners, Rights the Project. Prisoners' Rights Project. Great. This is WMPG. I've been talking to Sonia about her experience being arrested for possession of explosives and firearms during the Vietnam War and what it's been like since to live with a criminal record. If you didn't get to hear this whole show and you would like to, we will post it on the website at safespaceradio.com and you can listen to it and all the other shows in this series are there. You can also email the link to a friend and you can sign up to get a weekly email with the link to that week's show. You can also download us from iTunes for your morning commute, and you can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing this show, to Morse Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.